Um, Matthew 13 is what we're going to be in. Um, we're going to read the parable itself, um, and then um, we're going to um, uh, take. We're going to stop after that. So we're going to read the first um, several verses. The first, uh, I think, like eight or nine verses. So Matthew 13, verse one, and we'll put it up on the screen. Oh, oh sorry. Okay, it's all you, Steve. I'm not going to do it. Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of, his, out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So we'll stop right there for a second. So this parable, um, what's happening here is that Jesus has spent quite a while now uh, gathering his disciples and then going out and performing signs and wonders and miracles and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And as he has done that, as he has miraculously healed people, cast demons out of people, done all kinds of incredible things, um, the word has spread quickly and he has amassed this huge crowd of people following him. Um, and uh, this is in the age when there was no advertising, there was no social media or internet, you couldn't get out a phone and text somebody and say you've got to see about what's happening with this guy Jesus. Uh, and even then, with the limited communication that people had, um, everyone heard about what was going on. Uh, everyone was telling their neighbor and telling their friends in person that they had to come and see uh, this person, Jesus, this rabbi, this, this, this teacher, Jesus, who was doing incredible things. People pressed up against him because by just touching him, people could be healed at times, and that was important to them. And so after he had gone to a house um, prior to this passage, he came back out of the house, and we read that there's all these people again. And so he tells his disciples, to get a boat, and he gets in a boat, and he goes out from the shore a little bit, kind of smart, because he's like, okay, I need a little bit of space, I need a little bit of buffer from these people, they're literally touching me in order to get healed, which makes sense, but if I'm going to be able to teach, I'm going to need to get a little bit of space. So he gets back into the water in the boat, but he also goes out into a lake, because uh, if you know anything about how sound travels over water and stuff like that, then it probably amplified what he was saying, and so as he's teaching people, as he's talking to people, he's kind of like found this really great way to get the word out to this whole crowd. It's in that situation that Matthew tells us that Jesus then begins to tell parables, uh, a parable, and it's very important here to see that what Matthew doesn't say is he teaches. So prior to this, uh, Jesus was teaching. It was always that Matthew was teaching this, or, or sorry, Jesus was teaching this, or he was teaching this. But in this instance, it says that he told them this thing, which is different. Now, if you know anything about teaching, you know that um, it's important to be clear. Uh, it's important to spell things out for people. You don't really want to be mysterious and vague and confusing. You want to be as straightforward as possible if you're actually going to teach people who are there to learn as your students. But what Jesus is doing here is he's changing the way that he talks to all these people. He's changing the way that he communicates to them, which is why at the very end of this, he says the weirdest thing ever. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. No, it was not the case that back then only some people had ears on their head. Um, some of you know about talking this way to people. Uh, maybe you have tried to communicate to little people at a point, and you've had to say if you have ears or you have ears, so maybe you need to listen and use them, things like that. Um, and, uh, and what Jesus is saying here is he's acknowledging the fact that he's changed the way that he's communicating to people because there's, there's something happening with uh, him giving the message, the word of God, talking about the kingdom of God, sharing the gospel to people, all that stuff, and the way that people are responding. What we see happen in the ministry of Jesus again and again is that uh, Jesus is getting completely different responses to his message. He is giving the same message, 
but he's getting totally different responses from all the people that are coming. And it's actually really important to stop and ask for a minute why that is. And I think his disciples were wondering that, and they were, couldn't figure out exactly why people were responding in such a variety of ways. But the question that we ask, and I think it's a valid one, is this. Why does God's word transform some lives and not others? Uh, And the reason that we ask that question is because we're like, if this is the word of God, if Jesus is God himself speaking to people, if he has the ability to do all these miraculous things, if this is truth, like he says it is, if this is salvation as he says it is, then why on earth would it not be something that would just sort of universally be accepted or at the very least have the power to just like blow people over with it? And they would like have no choice but to go, that's true, I agree with it, whatever. It's going to transform my life in some way or another. Uh, even uh, the fact that there were people uh, who, who loved Jesus' message, there were people who hated Jesus' message, and there were people even in the middle who were like kind of indifferent to Jesus' message or like didn't understand it, even though up till this point he was being fairly clear. This question is an important one. Why does God's word transform some lives and not others. It gets different responses for different people. And it's become such a problem that Jesus is changing the way he communicates because some people are getting so upset that if he doesn't change how he's communicating, they're going to kill him, basically, before the time has come. He answers this question with this first parable. He answers this question by explaining and showing why the message is received so differently. So a parable is like an extended metaphor. And like any metaphor, you can't break it down too much because if you do, it breaks down, right? If you analyze it too closely and try to pick apart every little thing, then it breaks down. If you've ever tried to give a metaphor to someone and you're really proud of it and then they start to go a little too far with it, you're like, stop, you're ruining it. Just, it's this, that's all it means, right? And parables are great like that because they really just mean a thing. And they're talking about a thing. There's not too much complexity to them. And in this parable, what Jesus is addressing, what he is talking about is this. He's answering this question of why this is true. It doesn't, uh, well, well let me, let's, let's read, um, um, starting a few verses later, um, where Jesus um, explains to his disciples a little bit more of what's going on. After he said these things, the disciples came to him, and they asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. So he's explaining to the disciples, why now change the way you're talking? And he says, I'm doing it because there are people who just refuse to hear this message. And because of that, I'm not going to spell it out in the same way anymore. I'm going to offer it as something that is of value to those who have any interest or need for it at all, and so that it falls on the deaf ears of the others. He then goes on, and he interprets this parable. That's that's maybe why I picked this one, because it's the easiest one. I can't get it wrong. Uh, It's the new year, kind of getting back into things, and I'm like, okay, I'll pick the one that Jesus explains, but I'm going to do it slow. I'll do it, you know, four weeks. And uh, the first soil is what Jesus talks about, and that's the one we're going to look at this morning. And then the next few weeks, we're going to look at these other soils, and we're going to see the significance of each one of them. Uh, Jesus goes on and says this, listen then to what the parable, sorry, we're going to kind of skip ahead past some, um, some things that he quotes, and he says this to them, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So the first one that he talks about is, uh, is this path that is hard. So in this parable, it's fairly straightforward. There's a sower. 
There's a person that is throwing seeds. This is how it worked. A sower would go out with a bag of seeds, and they would just kind of throw them out into their field, um, and the ground would be prepared for it, and then eventually they would kind of cover the rows back up or cover it back up, and then it would, they would do everything else that they're supposed to do. The point of the parable is not the sower. It's actually usually called, in your Bible, it's probably called the parable of the sower. That's not really an accurate description of it because the parable is not about the sower. The sower is kind of just there passing along this, doing this, casting this message out there. Um, and, uh, but what the parable is about is it about, it's about these soils. It's about these four different soils. And what Jesus is doing is he's explaining something, which is this. The reason why the message of God, the word of God, the news of the kingdom, um, the reason that it is responded to so differently is because of the condition of the hearts of the people who hear it. It is not because of the way it was delivered. It is not because of the conditions and the environment around that determine why people are reacting so differently. It ultimately comes down to something that is incredibly personal to each person. It comes down to the state of a person's heart. This, says Jesus, is the way the kingdom of God works. The word of God comes to us as a seed. And if the soil of our heart is, in this first one, simply receptive at all, then the seed may take root, it may grow, it may be planted. But if our heart is hard, if uh, we are the path, not even the soil, then what will happen is that word will sit there, and eventually, he says, the enemy will come, like a bird, and snatch it up and eat it away, because that is what the enemy does. Why does God's word transform some lives and not others? Well, it's because of the state of people's hearts. We have more ways to hear and see the word of God than at any other time in human history. We have Bible translations. We have videos. We have uh, podcasts that preach to us and explain things that aren't in sermons that are more specific and detailed. We have study helps. I'm going to kind of reveal my secrets here and tell you. I have a computer program that it doesn't actually write sermons. I wouldn't tell you if it did that. But it, I have a computer program that my entire library can be contained in. And by just clicking a button, I can actually translate a word into the original language. Um, and it's like crazy simple to do something like that now, whereas we never had the ability to do something like that before. Uh, you still need to go to seminary. It's not that simple, but, you know, I do have a purpose here. Okay, I promise. We have Bible tracts and bumper stickers. We have things that are meant to communicate in the shortest way possible or the most easy-to-digest way possible these mysteries of the kingdom of God. We have billboards on the side of roads so that if you're perhaps driving for 15 hours down to California with your family and um, having an argument or something or stressed out and yelling at your kids and you happen to look up and see God has the answers, right? Uh, and you're like, what are you calling on? The, what, are you, what number are you calling? I'm just calling a number real quick. I need to find out what these answers are because I need some answers, right? We, we can drive down the road and see things that have been made to make it possible for us to, to capture our attention in such a brief amount of time so that we could possibly take in some part of God's truth in a way that we've never had access like before. We have Christian music, we have Christian art, we have Christian poetry, we have Christian movies, we have Christian TV shows, we have Christian cartoons about vegetables. We have churches that present the gospel to virtually every kind of community, every kind of person, every race that inhabits our city and our area, each culture. And that's not even getting to the Bibles that we have. We have Bibles that are translated in languages that we can understand and doing work to translate them always into other languages um, because that ultimately is the way that people will hear and receive the word and not have to have it necessarily explained to them third hand. We have Bibles in 
translations. We have Bibles in different sizes. We have Bibles with different kinds of covers. I have like 15 Bibles in my office, and they are all the same Bible, but I've got some in, 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 uh, that, that look all kinds of different ways, one that's really small and one that's really big. And if you get, start to get old and you're like, okay, I'm going to need a little bit more help, then we, they have Bibles that are uh, extra super giant print Bibles. You can get an NIV super giant print uh, reference Bible. You can, there, there's Bibles for everything. There are men's Bibles. You can get an every man's battle Bible, um, or you can get a um, he reads truth Bible for men, and you can get a she reads truth Bible for women, because there's one of those too. You could get a, a men's study Bible. You could get a woman's study Bible. Don't worry. Don't worry. There's one for men and one for women, and both can study the Bible. You can get a sportsman's Bible. Uh, that's very helpful, right? You can get an outdoorsman Bible. This, by the way, this is the only one I'm going to take issue with because I had a camouflage Bible once, and I don't spend a lot of time outdoors, but I'm fairly certain that if you spend your time outdoors amongst stuff that looks like that, I can tell you from experience the last thing you want is for your Bible to blend in because I dropped my Bible once, and it was like, I don't know where it is. So... That would be bright orange if I was an outdoorsman. But fine, if you spend more time outdoors and you know something, I don't know. Maybe it's waterproof and windproof and all that stuff. We have, uh, we have every man's, uh, oh, that's the every man's Bible Bible. That was the one-year study Bible. But not just for men, we also have the busy mom's Bible. If you're busy and you're a mom and you're like, I need a Bible that's special somehow just for that. I don't, I don't know what it does, but somehow it works better for you if you're a busy mom. We have uh, the beautiful word Bible, which has words written in beautiful ways that are more pleasing to look at. The My Promises Bible, you can get a C.S. Lewis Bible if you want to know what C.S. Lewis says about everything that you're reading. We have an athlete's Bible. We have a teen study Bible, which is good because, or the NIV study Bible for teens. We have a, a guy, NIV study Bible for guys and a teen study Bible. We have a, a NIV study Bible for teen girls. Don't worry, girls can study uh, as teens as well. Uh, we have a uh, teen study Bible for boys, uh, which I guess is different than the NIV. I don't know. But unfortunately, there's no teen study Bible specifically for girls. There's an artisan collection Bible for girls, um, and I'm not sure what that is. But we have the, like, epic Bible, the manga Bible. We have an action Bible. There is a brick Bible. Um, and that's not even really getting into just the kids' Bibles because we have kids' Bibles of every different shape and size. We have every possible version of this thing that makes it accessible to every different subset of every one of us. And if it isn't, just write a letter to somebody, and I guarantee you they will make a Bible for it because there are probably people like you who are like, well, I'm a teen, and I'm a girl, and I'm studying, and I've noticed there isn't a teen girl study Bible, and so I want one of those right away. We have all of this, more than we've ever had before. We have a message that has been packaged in every conceivable way possible, and yet we also find that we have fewer churches maybe than we've had in years past, that we have fewer people attending church, fewer people who identify as Christians, fewer of those who attend church have basic knowledge, like, and I mean basic knowledge, about the Bible itself. Of course, no one at our church, but at other churches have lack basic knowledge about that thing. We've seen at a time when we have more access to the seed than ever before. It has been packaged in such a way. The conditions have been such that, that it should be more um, prevalent and abundant, the transformation that it brings. There should be more little plants and fruit everywhere like never before, and yet we see the opposite. We see less and less and less. Why in the world is that? Because none of this means anything at all if a person's heart is closed off. Or, in Jesus' words, if their heart is too hardened. Because the seed will not penetrate. And he isn't, I don't think he's just talking about people who have never heard the word and will hear it for the very first time. It will just sit there and it will eventually be snatched away. The truth is that for many of you and for many of us, if you think about a time in your life when you grew the most spiritually, it was probably not because you got a new version of the Bible. 
it was probably not because you just found this new great program or resource and all of a sudden you were able to turn over parts of your life to being transformed by Jesus that you weren't able to before. It probably isn't even for most because you found a great Bible teacher who was able to make it so accessible for you that all of a sudden it kind of overrode the hesitations and frustrations and confusions and, and things that were maybe getting in the way before. No, when most of us think about what it was when we were at a time in our life where we grew a lot spiritually in our faith and our trust in Jesus, our life was transformed more, it was a time when our hearts were opened. Uh, They might have been opened by different things, by circumstances, by all kinds of stuff, but that is the single most important thing when we encounter God's word. And I want to be really clear here. I do not think that all these resources are in any way a bad thing. I don't think it's bad that we have all these kinds of Bibles. I love the fact that my son could like devour the action Bible when he's going to bed at night before he knew how to read super well. And then he could go to bed and have like nightmares about these like graphic things that he read about. And, or that my daughter could like, when she was struggling to go to sleep at night, um, could listen to hymns um, and get, and like, and like have these things kind of like there in her mind as something that helped to kind of calm her and help are kind of a part of like her experience as a child growing up hearing about Jesus and about God himself. Um, I remember when I became a Christian um, in high school and after my baptism, um, I went out and, and bought my first like real Bible and I bought the teen study Bible. And this is like the biggest deal in the world. I have one right here. This is the one I have. You're like, what is this Bible? It's the Teen Study Bible. I actually borrowed this one. I don't have mine anymore from Christine Wilson. She still uses the Teen Study Bible every day, I think. Um, There's lots of interesting stuff highlighted in here if you want to come look. But uh, I got this thing, and for a kid who grew up in a family that wasn't Christian, who didn't really have parents explaining things in the Bible to me, and who didn't yet even really have a youth group or a youth pastor, it was actually really nice to have a Bible where I could read stuff in the margins and in these different pages that actually explained some things for me and sort of put some of this stuff together. Eventually, I moved on to the Life Application Study Bible, the Experiencing God Bible, and then just the most plain Bible I could ever get, because when you go to seminary, it just has to be plain, and maybe in like Greek or something like that. These things are incredibly valuable. They're incredibly helpful to so many different kinds of people. But the point Jesus is making here is that when God's word doesn't penetrate our hearts and our lives for whatever reason, we know that the reason isn't the message itself, that it needed better packaging. If our hearts are not open to receive it, it will do us no good. It will do us no good. You probably know that if you bought a Bible for someone who um, was maybe closed off to Christianity and you thought, maybe if I buy the perfect version for them. Well, unfortunately, if their heart isn't open in any way, then that seed will just kind of sit there until something happens in their life that causes it to change. So the question that I have that I kind of find myself asking as I read this is, you know, Um, why things are this way. Um, Jesus explains to his disciples um, that um, this parable of the sower um, is about um, people um, hearing the word and that this first soil, this path, is the one that we're talking about here today. What hardens a person's heart is the question, I think. What is it that causes a person's heart to be closed off to God, to his word, to his truth. There's three things that I think about when I think um, about what it is that causes this to happen for people. And I think that some of them apply to maybe even us more than we would like to think. This is a parable that we, um, if you've read it many times, we, we often read and then immediately skip past the first soil because we're like, that's not me, I'm something else. But I think this hardening happens more often than we think. What hardens a person's heart? The first one is this. It is a mind that's already made up. A mind that's already made up. The group that Jesus again and again and again referred to as being hard-hearted were the religious leaders, the people who had the most information, the most knowledge, the experts in the law, the scribes, the Pharisees. In the Bible, the word for hard-hearted or for hardened is also the word stubborn. 
And so in the New Testament, when you come across the word stubborn and you look at the translation of it, it's, saying, it's this same word that's used here. It gets used interchangeably depending on the translation and the context. But what Jesus is essentially saying is that these are the people who are stubborn in their hearts. And he gave that accusation, he pointed that out, and the religious leaders more than anyone. We read this in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus is in a situation where a man's been brought to him and he's asked to heal this man on the Sabbath and the religious leaders are like, are you going to do it? Are you going to break the law and do something big on the Sabbath because you're not supposed to? And this is what we read. He looked around at them, these religious leaders, in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to them, to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now that is a hard heart. That is a stubborn person. Um, those who were the religious leaders at the time had such confidence that they already knew the answers to everything. That when God himself sent his son, their Messiah, the person they had been anticipating would come, because they were so confident that they understood everything, that when he did come, they didn't see it, and they rejected it, the very people who shouldn't have. And one of the things about the religious leaders that's so nuts in the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus is that so often what they would do is they would say to Jesus, like they would look at the sinners that he was hanging out with, these people, and they would say, why are you with them? Why is he with them? He eats with them. He hangs out with them. Because they're the ones that are... That are, that are like, not open to this at all. They're the ones that aren't receptive. In fact, they're so far away from the kingdom of God that all that's going to happen is Jesus, this guy and his disciples are going to get polluted by them. They're going to be defiled by them. They're going to become unclean by them. They looked at these people who were actually closer to Jesus than they themselves, and they were convinced that those people themselves were closed off. The truth was that most of the religious people of Jesus' day had so much confidence in their own maturity their own righteousness, their own reputation, their background, their accomplishments. They had stopped listening to God altogether. How tragic that these were the least capable of hearing, those who were the least capable of hearing God's message for the world were the ones in the temples, the ones teaching people about Yahweh. The truth is that when we grow confident in ourselves, in our maturity, in our being certain we move away from a place of listening, a posture of receiving, even towards God, to one of guarding what we have and even of like defending what we have. That becomes our primary concern. We move from curiosity and humility, saying, I don't have it all figured out and I'm not perfect, to certainty and pride. And this is what it looks like for a person to have a heart that is hardened, that is closed off. One of the ways we know we've gotten to this place, potentially, is when we find ourselves fixated on other people's behavior and other people's lives over our own. When we find ourselves getting like agitated and frustrated and feeling discouraged even, when we look at the world and we look at other people and we just go, why, how could that person, how could those people, how could they be so off base? The more that agitation builds, I am absolutely convinced that there is a direct correlation to the openness of our own hearts. Honestly, just because if we're hearing from God regularly and our hearts are open, we're going to be too busy with what God is showing us about the kingdom of God, in our own lives, in our own families, in the spheres that we're actually like in control of in any way than of other people. It's a struggle to hear this parable, to hear the parable of the soils, to read it, and not immediately start thinking of other people who need to hear it, of other people whose hearts are so hard and so closed off. You get together with your friends and you lament the state of the world, the people around you. You open the Bible and you think of all the people who this is talking about and to, but you don't think about yourself. I think another way that this mind already made up thing kind of manifests itself, in one of the ways that's the most innocuous is just indifference. There are people who are just indifferent to the word of God, to the truth of God. This year after the first day of school, 
I asked my son, oh, I just realized something. I, so I told this story first service, and I was like, I didn't ask Ellie if I could say this, and it might make her look bad. And then I didn't ask her again if I could say it second service. But she didn't come up and go like, how dare you? So I'm going to assume that she's okay with it. If not, she'll rush the stage right now. Um, this year after the first day of school, I asked, um, I asked Tegan um, how he liked his teacher, and he said he liked her a lot. And I said, um, was she nice? And he said, yes, she was very nice. And then I don't know why I asked this. I just said, like, who was your least favorite teacher that you've had ever? And uh, you shouldn't, don't, don't, why would you ask that question to your kid, right? Um, and he goes, oh, he answers, like, without even thinking very long. He just says, my, th my third grade teacher. And I was like, wasn't that the year that you were homeschooled? Because it was COVID. And he was like, yeah. And he was like, it was all yelling. That's what he said. He said, it was all yelling. She just, we just yelled a lot. And I'm like, man, I was there, you know? Like, I saw it, buddy, and uh, the fact that furniture wasn't getting flipped over and there wasn't, like, more bruises and stuff, that, to me, is impressive about how that year went because, honestly, like, there was a difference. I'm sure we were the only people that experienced this, I'm sure, but it turns out there's a difference between, like, uh, you know, being around a teacher who maybe you have any desire whatsoever to impress or classmates or peers or people and just being at home with your family and, like, having any desire to, to like, work hard for them at all. And so there's, like, nothing more infuriating than trying to, like, read through something with a kid in that place and then be like, okay, let's answer some questions. It's like, why, why, what happened here and why did they say that? What do you think? It's like, I don't know. I don't know. It's too hard. I don't remember. I can't do this, right? Jeez, get off my back. It's never hard like this at school, you know? It's like the most frustrating thing. When a person is just there in body, physically, but just kind of indifferent to the whole process, right? Uh, that's a really frustrating thing to happen, but sometimes the people that Jesus himself encountered were in that spot. They were there in body. They were there because of a healing or something that had happened and that they experienced, but they just were kind of indifferent as soon as he started talking about the kingdom or from the word of God or himself. I think the other cause of this is callous. Uh, and the callous is caused by hurt and by pain. There's something that um, the human body does. If there's a sensitive part of our skin or our body and that thing experiences pain or friction over and over again, it will develop oftentimes a callus, which is basically like, um, like a thick layer of protection uh, so that then it won't feel that thing anymore. You've developed these on your hands. Maybe if you play an instrument like guitar or something on your fingers over time, like the strings, they really hurt for a while. Then you get your calluses and thank the Lord they don't hurt anymore and it's not quite as painful and bad, right? Our body does this, and one of the reasons that hearts are hardened is because people have experienced pain, they've experienced hurt, and because those things for them are associated with the church, they're associated with God himself. It's created in their own heart, around their heart, sort of this like layer of callousness that's like nothing's getting through here, especially if it has anything to do with God or with Jesus. It may have been growing up in a Christian home that was unhealthy or was traumatic. And that, that Christian home, you identify as it was probably because of that faith. It may have been attending a church that turned you off to the faith. It may have been being around people who hurt you. And because maybe those people were Christians, you associated with the faith. It might have been living in a city or living in a place where, like, everything was Christian, but then it also wasn't really Christian. It was kind of culturally Christian or something. And because of that, you kind of got, like, a weird, skewed view of what faith looked like, and you associated it with anything that you didn't like about that place. Or maybe you've experienced politics and religion getting mixed together and uh, only um, hearing about Jesus associated with one side of the things that are going on in the world or that you think. And so because of that you associate it with like a certain party or just the people that you disagree with about these things who cite the Bible or cite their faith. Maybe you followed a pastor who ended up not living out what they preached. Maybe you were discipled by somebody. You were mentored by somebody who um, didn't ultimately seem to have that genuine of a faith or, uh, you know, turned away from it themselves or themselves fell into sin and turned out it felt like they were some kind of like a hypocrite or something. I mean, there are 
there are, have been scandals like those in the Catholic Church, scandals in the Evangelical Church and like the Southern Baptist Convention just over the last year, um, major scandals in which groups of people who went out of their way, who have gone out of their way to say, we are the ones who say what morality is, right? We're the ones that say what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. Some of those very big groups of people, it turns out, they were being very immoral. Or maybe they found out that people were being immoral and the way they handled it was by themselves being immoral and trying to cover it up or push it under the rug or things like that. The truth is there are so many things that people can experience in life that can cause harm and that can cause hurt. And in, in a lot of ways, there's nothing worse than um, choosing to be vulnerable. And the definition of the word vulnerable is to open yourself up to uh, the possibility of being wounded. That is what it means to be vulnerable, is to choose to open yourself up. You know, we, we know about fake vulnerability, right? Like you can go show so much like online or something, but can't really hurt you there. Real vulnerability, the kind that happens in a community of faith even, or in a family, or with close friends. To, to become vulnerable and then to feel hurt in that, to feel like you've been wounded in that, will cause us to do what the human body does, to build up that callus, that thing to protect us. And we all know people who have absolutely no desire to hear about God, no desire to hear about Jesus, no desire to open up a Bible because they associate those things with unpleasant stuff that's painful. But there are also situations in which people are sort of calloused because of pain and suffering or things that they've experienced that are their own doing. Like, it's not always the fault of um, the other person. It may not always have been the fault of the family or the church, or it may just be the fact that there are plenty of reasons why people would be closed off because there's something going on within them that isn't really healthy. It isn't really good. And I think what it causes is, is blindness and numbness, that there are lies that we can believe and build our entire lives on that blind us to God's word. And there are sins that ultimately will numb us to his word. There are some who have become so convinced of things that they are not, that, things that are not true, that it is actually redefined what they see as true and false, right and wrong, reality from things that are not real, natural versus unnatural. Paul talks about this. I knew I was going to do it. Paul talks about this in Romans when um, he's talking about how sinful people are. He says they, being like people collectively, exchange the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. According to Paul in Romans, God is our author, which means he made us. And because of that, he's our authority, which means that what he says about truth and about the world and about us is, tr is, is the way it is. That's the way it is. We don't get to decide it's something else. But if we don't recognize that God is our author and he is our authority, then what we will begin to do is simply define truth for ourselves. We'll, every situation, every possible thing, we'll have to sit down and go, now what do I think this really maybe is? Um, because um, it can't be that thing and it can't be God. And as as we do that, we begin to build, even our lives sometimes, on ways of seeing ourselves and seeing the world that are ultimately not true. They're unnatural, they're untrue, they're, they're false. And when that happens, it blinds us, it hardens our heart. It makes it so that when we do hear about God, we do hear about faith, we do hear about Jesus or the gospel, we hear about any of these things, that it just bounces right off. Because no, 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 not that stuff. I, I remember that stuff, or I, I know about that stuff. And that's not at all um, true anymore. The truth becomes a joke. It becomes childish to us. It becomes something that we moved past a long time ago, maybe, when we became enlightened and we learned to think for ourselves. The truth is now, it's regressive. It's, like, oppressive. It's outdated. The last thing that we need is to let that back into our lives, we say. And that is a hard heart that is built, that has happened because of lies. Or there are those who are, uh, are numb because there are things in life that are ultimately sinful, and these things have made it not possible to actually see uh, the truth of God. 
Jesus encounters all kinds of people in his ministry, and oftentimes he'll encounter people and he'll share the good news of the kingdom, or he'll, they'll, they'll ask him questions and he'll give them answers. And, uh, and uh, sometimes, because people have things in their life, sins that are in their life, things that are idols to them, they won't be able to really fully uh, do or see what Jesus says. One of the best examples of that is this man that we call the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, he's got everything going for him in life. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler. And uh, those are all good things. And he comes to Jesus and says he's, he wants to be as righteous as possible. How can he do that? He says, I've obeyed all the laws. I've done all the things. How can I do it? And Jesus says the thing that you're like, I, was he thinking, please don't say this? Or did it never occur to him before that that Jesus might? Probably the second. Jesus says, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you will be righteous. And what does it say in that, in that, in that account? If you've read it, it says that he went away sad. He went away sad because his resources and money, which are not in and of themselves bad things. It's not bad to be rich. I don't think Jesus tells everyone to sell everything that they have. But Jesus knew that this had become his God. And so he said, you can follow all the laws in the world, but this thing is the thing that really matters for you. But because his, his resources, his wealth, the abundance that he had, had become something bad, it had become something sinful. And most of the time, we turn to things that are sinful and hurtful and bad because we're trying to numb things in our lives. We're trying to ignore things or get past things or pretend not to be dealing with certain things or try to distract ourselves from things. And the problem with trying to numb something is you tend to numb everything or you tend to numb a lot of things. And as a result of that, um, when the truth of God comes, um, the heart is heart and the person can't receive. All they can do is walk away sad. Uh, these are the things that harden a heart. And while we may know people who seem so far away from God and they seem so opposed to anything having to do with God, and we might think that's a hard heart and it's one of these things, I do think that there are also things that can happen in our own life as we live out the Christian life um, that can cause us to close ourselves off to what it is that God has to say. I think that... Um, the question that this sort of begs, at least I know for me, was, um, is it possible to soften a hard heart, like, especially in another person? Because I think if we ourselves are asking God, I'll say this, I'll say there's, let me say it this way. There's three things that we can basically walk away from this asking, okay? The first one is, how can I not have a hard heart. I think that's a good thing for us to ask. In case you haven't figured it out yet, I'm talking to all of us as much as to those who are outside this room. How can I not have a hard heart? It is extremely simple. The psalmist himself says to God, David says, search me and know me. Know my heart and search it. He's saying to God, I need to look inward at myself and I don't want to do it alone, which is good because it's pretty scary to do it alone sometimes. So we come before God, and we ask God, search my heart, God. Search my heart. Um, is it hardened? Is it calloused? Are there things that I have decided to just completely stop listening to and hearing and thinking about? Is my confidence and my pride getting in the way of the curiosity and humility that has to come with continuing to follow Jesus until we're in heaven with him? The first thing that we have to ask is, God, is it possible for me to... Um, to, to search, and, and God says, I do that. I want to do that with you. I don't want you to do that by yourself. The other question, though, I think, is, is it possible to help other people who have hardened their hearts, who have these calloused hearts, who are this path that you know if the seed gets thrown there, it probably is just going to sit there and it's going to bounce off because of how far away they seem to be from God. And I think that there is a way to do it. And I think what's incredible is we see it in the way that Jesus himself did his ministry. The ministry of Jesus was basically three things over and over and over again. It was preaching about the kingdom, it was showing compassion to people, and it was inviting people into community. Jesus did these three things. And the reason I think he did these three things was because Jesus was encountering so many people who were not automatically just receptive to this. I think that um, a, hard, a hard, hard heart can be softened first by compassion, by acts of love and compassion to other people. Before we show up on a street corner with a megaphone, before we tell someone you have to hear this thing, even if I know that you're maybe aren't going to be receptive to it and you'll reject it, 
the greatest thing that we can do is whatever we think will show compassion to another person. I've talked with missionaries who go to other countries and want to reach people with the gospel in an area that people would say is very dark or that the soil is very hard, they might say. And the way they do that is not just by setting up a brand new church and saying, come on in, we've got cool posters and there's snow cones, you know, you're going to love it. What they do is the first thing is, is find ways to show people that you care. Because they won't care how much you know, you get the idea, right? You find a way for people to have access to clean water. You find a way for people to have access to medical help. You teach people a language that it really helps them to learn another language and to have more opportunities maybe in life. Um, you, uh, you care for people in whatever way possible to show them um, that, that God is love and to start there. We saw people constantly encounter Jesus and some of them were so far away from God and they never thought in a million years that they could ever be close to God. Their hearts were closed off to it. They wouldn't receive it. And Jesus, in, in his healings and in his compassion, and his willingness to even uh, see people and hear people and know people, right, meet them right where they're at, showed them compassion that no religious leaders had before. It, it said to people, it isn't the same as you think it is. Or whatever hurts you experienced, it doesn't have to be that way here. I'm not saying that didn't happen, and I'm not saying that wasn't real. But I'm saying it doesn't always happen that way. Plus, do you know what your experience really probably taught you? Was that what the world needs is more actual Christians and less people who say they're Christians and don't live it out. But the other thing that we see Jesus do again and again is he invites people into community. And I've talked to people, again, in other countries and other places who've recognized that one of the most effective ways to reach people who are far from God is to invite them into community, to invite them in because people are isolated, people are alone, people are disconnected, and the kinds of community that usually happen are not very deep and meaningful to people, and they're ultimately self-serving to so many. We see Jesus doing this again and again. And I think that there's something about inviting people in. The mission of this church, we say, is to build a community to reach a community. Uh, it is not community for its own sake. It is community because we believe that that is how Jesus reached people. And it is the most fulfilling kind of community because it's not totally self-serving for us. The other question that I think, I know at least I asked, and you might not ask this, but I did, and I don't even have like a slide or anything for it, but um, it's this. Is there any way to actually affect uh, the conditions of a person's heart rather like, like as those conditions are, are happening? You know, is there any way to actually like, like maybe affect this in some way, to change this in some way? Because, you know, one of the hard things in life is you kind of learn you can't change people, right? That's really frustrating. Go to marriage counseling. They'll tell you on the first time, sorry, you may have come in under false pretenses. You're not going to change them. You can only change yourself, right? If you want to change something your kids are doing, sorry, you can't just change it the way you want. Um, it's going to be a little bit harder than you think there. But is it possible to actually like affect the state of the soil that is a person's heart, a person's ability to receive God. And I absolutely think that it is, but I think that there's a key to it, and it's this. When, when Scripture talks about the heart, it's not actually talking about the organ in your chest, the muscle that pumps blood throughout your body. It's talking about the center of your being, the center of who you are. It is the core of you. And the truth is that as we grow, and mature and develop physically. We grow and mature. Our heart itself is being formed. The soil of our heart is being formed. If you want to impact the condition, the willingness, the receptivity of a person's heart, there is nothing better, I think, that you can do than to help people who are young. Like, there is nothing like raising, in the act of raising children, in the act of working with youth, of being involved in their lives as a parent, as a teacher, as a, as a volunteer in a ministry at a church where they have an opportunity to connect with real people in a real way. 
um, to, to be an aunt and an uncle, to be a neighbor. Um, I, I have talked with so many people who, like, came to know Jesus when they were kids because of neighbors, you know, and uh, people that they still remember to this day. Um, to be a grandparent and to have grandchildren, man, you get to spoil kids and do all kinds of stuff that you want to do, right? Parents are the bad guy. They're the ones that are yelling at them at homeschool. You can be like, yeah, that sounds really sad. I'm sorry you had to deal with that. Anyway, here's some ice cream, and I want to tell you about how much God loves you. Uh, the truth is that absolutely we can have an impact on the condition of people's hearts as we invest in the lives of young people, as we invest in the lives of the young people in our family, in our church family, and in other families, as we actually show people like you are seen and you are heard and you are loved, as we show people what it is to love God and to be a person who lives out their faith, I think that is so hugely important, and it's a thing that we often miss. And really, when, when I think about, like, even as a parent or as a person with kids in my family that are my nieces and nephews, and eventually I'll be a grandparent maybe, we'll see, who knows, uh, I think that, like, man, what, what I will be doing is I will be influencing the development of a person's heart. And that's a huge thing. That's an incredible opportunity. And I think it's easy to miss that and to take it for granted. There, that's my little plug for, you know, kids and, you know, volunteer and kids ministry. We need helpers. Oh, goodness, do we need helpers. We need them. We need them in youth ministry. And we need people to partner with us and our families. We need people to, um, to be peers with us as we go along and do this together. And uh, we need people involved in our community. Uh, we need people teaching in our schools. We need people partnering with young people. We need people serving them and reaching out to them and showing them that they're loved and that God loves them, knowing that the, that's where the heart of this person is coming from. Okay, last thing. I know, you're like, seriously, this is really long. I'm sorry. It's the second service. I got lazy. I think that, um, I'll just say this as our band comes up and we begin to worship, okay? Um, our, you guys can just start playing and I'll stop talking, I promise. You can play me off like the Academy Awards. I think that we so badly want for the word of God not to be like a seed. I think we want it to be like a giant meteor or like a boulder that's just falling out of the sky, right? We go, come on, so what the, the path is hard? So what the soil is hard? You're God, you, you're strong, you're pretty high up there. You can build up some serious momentum. If the word of God were like a huge boulder, it would come crashing down, it would make a crater, and there would be no choice. Nobody would have a choice but to be changed and transformed by the power of it. We want for it to work that way. We do. But the truth of the matter is that's not the way that we work. And it isn't the way that God works, and it isn't the way that his word works. It is a seed. And rather than lament or expect that if God really, if it's important enough, God's going to let me know. Sometimes he does. It's usually extremely painful. But if we hope to avoid that even, we have to recognize that the gospel, that the word of God is a seed. It is being cast out again and again. And our job is to ask the question, am I open to receiving it each time? Or is there something that's closing me off? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your persistence in bringing your word to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who came and lived it in the flesh so that it could not be denied and we could see what it looked like lived out. Father, our prayer is that we would, um, with you, search our hearts, Lord. Would you, God, search our hearts? Would you find the ways within us, Lord? And would you show us what they are? God, would you help us to, through compassion and community, through relationships, would you help us to soften the hearts of others that have grown calloused and hard over the years? And God, would you use us as we seek to raise up future generations who don't have to have their hearts softened, maybe, because of the experience they had with people who loved Jesus, showing them your love and showing them that it is truly a good thing. It is really truth. It is really life. God, you have the power to do all these things. We do not have the power to do them. We are the receivers. So would you help us do that? Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and turn our hearts.